0: Have you ever thought about the way that we perform differently in a bar than we do in places like museums or how structural engineers are expected to be one way while someone like a muralist or a graffiti artist is expected to behave and dress and be another way? And have you ever felt like you didn't fit in if you weren't exactly like everyone else in your social circle? Like you, you maybe didn't have other options to explore that didn't fit the narrative of whatever circle that you might be in. <laughs> I feel like these are questions that I pursue consistently. What is it to code switch in different groups? What is it to explore outside of the identities and the labels that we have taken on for ourselves and how do people respond to, to those things when we decide to step out of the, the, the boundary that we've set for ourselves in terms of what the quote-unquote right way to behave might be. So here we are episode my it's my first official interview episode <laughs> and my name is Brandy and I'm your host for this show called This Plus That where I uh, talk about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why that matters and this is it my like I said my first show and I'm so thrilled and I'm nervous and I'm, I'm so many things, but part of the reason that I wanted to start with this interview is because it's with one of my close friends. She's one of my favorite people on the planet. Her name is Shannon Davies Mankus. And we are going to talk in this interview about the intersections of environment plus genre. Uh, and if you're like, what is genre and what does it have to do with the environment? Then don't worry. Cause Shannon has you covered. We're going to walk through it. And, uh, I just wanted to, I, I feel like before I start with the interview, I just want to share that personally, because she's one of my close friends, like just a few details that I, I just find so much joy in relationship with her. She's one of, uh, she's like the person I go to when I don't understand a storyline in a Marvel movie. She's who I trade Tom Hiddleston memes with (laughs) and, Uh, I'm such a fan of her obsession and crush on Tom Hiddleston, uh, and just her love of pop culture and how that affects how we behave in the world. And that's, that's part of what we talk about today. And, you know, as she says, she is on a quest to lead all the lives. Her undergraduate and first degree was in musical theater and she has maintained a performance practice through her second career as an academic She's currently an associate teaching professor and coordinator of the Nature and Human Values program at the Colorado School of Mines. Her work can be found in publications such as Performing Ethos, The Cambridge History of Science Fiction, and the Bloomsbury Handbook of 21st Century Feminist Theory. Her work focuses on the political performativity of environmentalist media and visual and popular culture. She loves traveling, community, and sharing exciting ideas. And we both love how popular culture shapes the way like those stories shape the way that we think we should behave in the world and so in this conversation we talk about a ton of interesting related things like uh, what scripts and genres have to do with the media we consume and how we behave in the world the power of stories and something called the information deficit model she also talks about living through 9-11 and the film that changed everything for her why she loves studying popular imagination around witches and how they connect to our sense of environmental doom. That's one of my absolute favorite parts of this whole conversation. Uh, And she also talks to me about how she weaved together all of these seemingly disparate things in her career into where she is now, but how all of that really only became clear in hindsight and why she loves teaching unexpected things to math and engineering students. But if you want to hear how Shannon and I met and some pretty amazing stories from her performance theater days where she was the, a background singer to Billy Porter at one point and how much better she is at karaoke than me. She's seriously incredible. <laughs> Stay tuned until the very end because I dropped in a bonus little tidbit from our chat after the interview. It's like an Easter egg in a Marvel movie, which feels really fitting. Um, and... And yeah, here we are. I, 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 like I said, I feel so nervous. I mean, I, w- when you first start recording yourself, it's amazing how much you notice that you say things that you wish you didn't repeat all the time. Like literally I say it a million times in this interview and uh, I, you know, I'm having so much fun doing this, but you know, I'm holding all these things in what it is to start something and put something you care about in the world and notice all of your imperfections and let it go anyway. So (laughs) I, I'm, I'm working on all of those things, but I'm more so just in so much joy that I get to share this interview with such a close friend with you and for this to be where I really start. So on, on to the interview, here you go. I hope you love it as much as I did. And I hope you feel what connection Shannon and I have. Enjoy this conversation about the connections of environment plus genre. When I asked you what resources I should check out to prep for this conversation, you shared this article from The Believer from Jenny Price with me. Mm -hmm. And there's this line in it about how our nature stories should help us walk the essential line between doing nothing in nature and doing whatever we want. And that such topics beg for a literature, for a poetry, for an aesthetics, because to clearly ponder our lives in and out of cities, we have to be able to imagine and reimagine these connections to nature, which I feel like is just the perfect way To introduce your work in the world. So tell me what you do and use that if that's a a helpful springboard to go off of.
1: Yes, I love that you pulled out that quote. It's so funny. I've, you know, assigned that article and read that article so many times. And now sort of hearing that bit pulled out, I feel like I want to frame it and put it in my office somewhere. So yeah, my work revolves around the performance of environmental politics. And we can sort of talk about the crazy road, how I got here. But my sort of fundamental belief, which is backed up by a lot of research, is that it doesn't matter how many numbers and facts and data points you give to people. But actually, what changes people's minds are stories. And so I really study the way that... Popular culture, film, art, those kinds of things present scripts for how people should interact with the environment.
0: Oh, I want you to say more about scripts. What do you mean by that? So, my undergraduate degree
1: is in musical theater. And when I was sort of transitioning between that career and my academic career, I sort of naturally gravitated to the field of performance studies. And performance studies really looks at how people follow scripts about how they are in the world, right? And I think the big thing to convey when we're talking about performance studies is that performance does not mean inauthentic, right? Mm. But we think a lot now in popular discourse about things like code switching and just, you know, what I sort of tell my students is we act different in different spaces. We wear different things. We speak at different times. We're silent more in museums. We're more raucous in bars, right? So all sorts of different factors in our social, cultural, environmental lives change the way we sort of perform our authentic selves. And so that's what I'm really interested in with these narratives is sort of what what scripts do they offer us in terms of what is the problem? How are we heroic? How do we get these stories to end happily? Does that
0: make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, I I started also thinking about, I used to do some work that really talked about like the idea of restrictive choice. I think um, it comes from sociology. Like the perfect analogy I think of is that you, you can choose whatever you wear every day. But that choice is restricted by what's in your closet. Right. Right. So it's not like your sort of point about being authentic or not. It's not that because we're following a script that that is sort of like that restriction, right? It's like the container that goes around it. It doesn't mean that we're not being authentic to ourselves. It just means we've learned particular ways of being in the world. Exactly. And so the writing that I'm doing now focuses a lot on
1: genre. Which sort of ties into this conversation, right? Um, If I say to you Western, there's a ton of variations within that bucket, within that genre bucket, but there are going to be some fundamental underlying principles that if they were missing, would sort of void the genre, right? We wouldn't be talking about a Western anymore. Right. Right. But what Jenny Price is saying, right, is there are certain set stories we tell about what it means to be a good environmentalist. And one is we sort of leave the quote unquote pristine environment alone, which there's lots of problems with that that I could get into. Um, humans have never not, they we've always affected the environment, right? But also, she feels like we, the other story is like, well, if we're not going to totally leave it alone, then the only other alternative is that we're running roughshod over it, right? And so she's looking for sort of new new stories, different ways of looking at how we interact with nature in our lives. And that's what I'm interested in, new stories, um, and how the story was, we tell over and over and over again, limit our understanding of how we can be in the world. Right.
0: And just that also, I feel like you're sort of making a point or you you made it a second ago. It was a little bit like science communication, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, so many people think that facts and figures are what are going to change minds, you know. But really when it comes down to it, story is what moves people. Yes. There's a principle in
1: sort of the social sciences when we talk about science communication called the information deficit model. And the information deficit model is the assumption that if you just give people good information, they'll come around to your way of thinking and and change their mind. And this has been studied a lot with climate change, right? There's, I think, an understandable, easy assumption to make that if you just show people the science, which shows conclusively that human beings are changing the environment – if you can just show them that information and give them the tools to really understand it for themselves, people will just be like, Oh, of course, now I see, right. (laughs) And unfortunately, that is not actually how the human brain works. Right. And so I mean, you can change some minds with numbers. But on a spectrum, if you give the people who are most suspicious of your point of view, more numbers, they will actually harden their position rather than changing their position. But stories can be more effective to helping people understand how they fit in the narrative. Climate communication specifically, including the really amazing work Catherine Hayhoe has done, is really about meeting people where they are, and engaging with their story and their sense of self and their values rather than throwing numbers at them, which is really not the most effective way. It has been proven to not be the most effective way to do things.
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to go back though, in your story, which is the musical theater stuff. (laughs) So, so I love your connection between scripts like where you took the sort of background of yours in performance theater, musical theater, and now connected it to the sciences, right? But how did you start in (laughs) musical theater? You know, I
1: really hated high school and I really found my sanctuary in theater. I feel like it let me be my fullest, quirkiest, authentic self in my really small town. And I loved... I loved making something with other people and sort of feeling in harmony with them, which I, you know, that, that sort of collaborative spirit, I think is really just a core part of my personality. But what started me on this trajectory, and we're going to get dark here. I'm sorry, we're going, we're going 9-11. I'm throwing 9-11 in
0: in here right away. (laughs) No, I was going to ask, yeah, because I feel like the, like what, you know, how you, what is it that makes you jump from, or not jump, but like, how does your brain start to combine these things? So my sophomore year of college in New York City,
1: I was cast in a show that we built from the ground up called Courage and we were creating it in 2001 and we went all around New York City and interviewed people and the core of the show was really about prosecution of minorities and people who sort of deviated from the norm we drew information from history we drew information from interviews that we had artwork that we saw around the city that kind of thing and we wrote and were rehearsing this play and the play was set to open on let me see okay so september 11th was a, was a tuesday the play was set to open on 12th, 13th the 14th september 14th oh my gosh and so the the school that I went to, Wagner, which is a really awesome theater school. I loved it there. We're on Staten Island, and the whole island shut down. They they shut down the bridges on and off of Staten Island. And so part of this show that we were doing was that there was a talk back afterwards where we dissected the, the show with the audience and they got to ask us questions and we got to talk about the themes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the weeks that followed, there were some really intense conversations, particularly around the truly terrible things that were happening to people who presented as Middle Eastern or Muslim in the New York City area. And there were real fights between people about sort of what our responsibilities as citizens were at this time and what we should be prioritizing and that kind of thing. And as stressful as those conversations were, they were incredibly important. And this was the only place that I saw those conversations going on among a group of largely strangers. We were a room of people. We were, you know, mostly at the same college. But people were really getting into serious existential issues with people they didn't know very well. And we were sharing this incredibly present, real experience. And so that to me sort of talked, it it spoke to the power of art to form a public sphere, like a place where people Mm. got together and were presented a locus to talk about information that they wouldn't normally, with a community they wouldn't normally talk about it with. So I knew when I decided to go to grad school that creativity and social change or performance and social change, how these two forces interacted was what all my central questions revolved around. And I took this really amazing class the first year of graduate school with Elizabeth Anchor about melodrama. And that's really where everything came crashing together for me, because Elizabeth Anker has written this really amazing book called Orgies of Feelings. And it's drawing on the work of Linda Williams and, and others. But basically, it, there's a whole strain of intellectual thought that looks at how melodrama functions as the primary mode of American storytelling. Right. And it includes all of these things, these structuring mechanisms, like suffering is a marker of virtue and that virtue that you accrue by suffering can transform you from a victim into a hero. And there's always this sort of sense of too late in the nick of time. And there's what we call manichaean dichotomies of good and evil, where people are good, they are evil. There just is this sort of moral occult that we all agree, like the conceit of the story, and this is of course not true, but the conceit of the story is we can all agree on what is good and what is evil. Right. Um, And you are aligned with one of those two forces. There are villains, there are victims, there are heroes. But what Williams and Anchor and others have argued, right, is that superhero films or Rambo or most of our basic action films are also melodramas. I should say one of the other things that defines a a melodrama is alternating pathos, right, this like intense Mm -hmm. feeling with action, right? So if we watch a superhero movie, the pacing of the movie is usually going to be something bad happens someone is lamenting over somebody else's body or like a lost love they're feeling something deeply and then they go and fight the bad guys right and that's that's sort of beat by beat how this plays out so when I took that class I started to think about how other genres infused the environmental rhetoric I was studying so how Radical environmentalists like the Sea Shepherds in particular, who the Animal Planet show Whale Wars was based on, who like in the early 2000s, they would go down to the Southern Ocean and sort of, I'm, I'm using scare quotes here, do battle with um, Japanese whalers. They were always saying like, we're the only sheriff in town, we're cowboys, that kind of thing, to help people understand that that the sort of violence they were enacting was moral, right? And there aren't a lot of genre frameworks that allow for that, right? But the Western, we expect the hero to use violence to restore moral order, right? That's allowed as long as it's virtuous. So I became really interested in how different genres are used to convey different types of politics and different scripts for citizenship, yeah, and that's where I am now. Now I'm really thinking about effective storytelling through through these almost like mythic sets of genres.
0: Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I, in grad school, I read this paper called Savages, Victims, and Saviors, The mm-hmm. Metaphor of Human Rights. And I reference that paper still today more than anything else I ever read in grad school. Because you see that dynamic those scripts, those myths that play out constantly. Like you said, the 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 binaries basically that we set up between good and evil, savage and victim, right? And then also all the ways that certain people are the ones that save and certain people are the ones that need saving. Mm -hmm. And who gets to do that saving and who yeah who who's the one that needs saving and who are we saving against basically. Yes. And, and
1: one of the big things that I always think about, especially when I'm dissecting popular culture in my classes is, you know, are these categories coded by race, gender, also, uh, geography, right? right? There's a lot of, there are a lot of films where being Southern, having a Southern accent Automatically makes you suspect, right? Right. Um,
0: age, what a shady character even... those Southerners are.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. Like all of these sort of markers, you know, are, do they do they map onto certain traits or certain sets of ethics when we're looking at a particular film? And 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 what does that mean? Because often that stuff can sort of fly by until you really take a take a magnifying glass to it.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, like me, before I went to grad school, I was a consumer of media. I wasn't like really participating and and taking a step back and having any sort of literacy. Like no one teaches you that. Right. And and or very often we don't get taught that until we are. And then once you once you are, then you see it all the time, or at least it, it just becomes a tool. So right now, though, you work primarily right in sort of an intersection between environment and film, Yes. And, and you do it at the Colorado school of Mines, yes. which is really interesting because it's a, like a humanities program and you teach nature and human values. So you're yeah. like, you're doing like ethics, values, film, and environment with like math and engineering students. Right. It is my dream job. It is the best. It's wonderful. <laughs> I kind not of believe it even exists. Right. It's, like I remember seriously. meeting you and going like, I'm sorry, you're teaching film And and like climate and environment stuff at an engineering school. Tell me more. (laughs) It really, I,
1: I still feel stunned that I managed to walk into this position because who better to talk about, to talk to about these things than really smart young people who are going into energy fields of all stripes, right? right? Or who really understand data and are consumers of media and are just smart and invested. I, it, I have a blast.
0: Yeah. I mean, even structural engineering, right? Like the effect of structural engineering on both environment and also like, you know, intersecting rate, uh, issues of like race and class and gender and all of that, right? Like I always think I had never thought about it before, and it's such an interesting intersection, so I think it always sticks in my head, but like when I learned that sometimes, like actually bridges are a great indicator of like the wealth of a community and, ha- and transportation has so much to do with access and opportunity to things. And so like the race of a neighborhood, like, so when you talk about geography even, right, as like one of those scripts that gets followed, like, you know, we were talking about the South, like there are certain neighborhoods, right, that like have higher or lower bridges even. And that lower bridges means that actually buses can't get through. So like if you're in a lower income neighborhood mm-hmm. that like, you know, poverty where people are having to ride the bus more often, than like structural engineering. And I mean, even right now, like we, uh, you know, I live in Denver and there's a massive highway reconstruction project going on. Like the biggest highway that runs through our entire state that's like a transportation thoroughfare for basically the entire United, United States or a very large portion of it. And it happens to run right through a traditionally low income neighborhood and all of the work to... Deconstruct that bridge and then build it back up has all of these environmental impacts that like the lead that's in all of the stuff that's getting torn up out of the ground and all of those sorts of things. Right. So, of course, like structural engineering and math and all these folks who are actually going to be the people who build and create the things that literally drive our society in the future. Of course, they should know about (laughs) environment and those sorts of impacts. Right. Yeah, and in Nature and Human Values, which is our freshman composition
1: ethics course that I coordinate, we just added a case study that everybody sort of looks at uh, about exactly that, Brandy, right? About the sort of Globeville construction widening um, project. And we we take that all the way back to redlining too, right? right? Often I think that students aren't taught the taught the background of why we link poverty, race, and environmental justice issues. And globals right. are really sort of
0: um, <sighs> great is not the word
1: I want to use. Right. Uh, I know what you
0: mean, though. It's like it's a quintessential example. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It's a quintessential example of how this happens, where people were denied housing loans because of redlining practices. And the term comes from sort of banks had maps and they would draw literal lines around different neighborhoods and give loans based on the sort of color rating of that neighborhood and and red was the worst.
0: Yeah, okay. So, why film though? Cuz you know, it was performance before, but I think your real area of love is film. So, what is it about film or like what's the film that sort of started you also on like using that as the medium by which you prefer to sort of both teach people these scripts and just in general, view them yourself. (laughs) Like I know that you love (laughs) pop culture and TV and film as much as I do. Film is just more widespread. I want to talk about
1: whatever sort of crazy critic panned film is number one at the box office and really get in there and be like, what is, what's appealing about this film to people? And You know, we're we're recording this in May 2021, and there was just like the last week of school, a student had just done a presentation on their paper about James Bond and sort of changes in gender perception in James Bond when Ted Cruz used, invoked James Bond and Jason Bourne to criticize an army recruiting advertisement. To say like, we need more James Bond and Jason Bournes, right? So pop culture serves as a touchstone in politics. They're the illusions, they're the reference that we that we go to when we're trying to find common ground often, right? And so that's what I'm, that's why I'm drawn to that over, over things like theater, which necessarily have, you know, smaller audiences. They're not as much of a sort of common touchstone. That's sort of why I continue to be energized by film and television, particularly popular film and television. There is one film that changed things for me. And again, I'm going to talk about 9-11. What a bummer. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Bring it. Let's (laughs) just get into the dark. So a turning point for me was the movie Cloverfield. And my first awareness of the I can't even say it was an awareness of the film. My first interaction with anything having to do with the film was posters that went up in the New York City subway system before they released the topic of the film before they released the name and it was just a picture of lower Manhattan and you could see the Statue of Liberty on the left-hand side uh-huh. and there was a smoking crater in the middle of lower Manhattan. And it said something to the effect of something is
0: coming and gave a date. Did that come out pre nine 11 or post nine 11 post Post nine 11. /11. So everyone sort of had this internal fear already and, and it was playing off of, off of that. Yes.
1: Yes. And it enraged me quite frankly, because it was obvious it was a movie poster. It had the date and, and that kind of thing. It ended up being a J.J. J. Abrams film, and I was way into Lost <laughs> at that moment. And so as much as the initial posters enraged me, because I really felt like it was playing off of that tragedy.
0: It's and a bit act- man- manipulative.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I started to get into the sort of puzzle box thing that he likes to do, where there were fake websites set up for this company that was a fake slushy company, but if you went to the website, you could get information about their, you know, whatever, and it gave you clues as to what this film was about. So then the the previews started coming out, and I got more and more intrigued. And for anybody who hasn't seen Cloverfield, it is, other than Blair Witch, it's your sort of quintessential shaky cam. Sure, Yeah. <laughs> people definitely had to leave the theater because they felt ill because they were getting motion sick. A little nauseous. Right, right, right. And I just, I had been engaging and had such strong feelings about this, this film for so long that actually wound up going to the midnight, like opening of the show at our local theater. It just was one of those nights where sort of things lined up and we were like, let's go do this. And the more I watched it, the more I... I felt like I started to understand something about what film could do. Hmm. Now, as a professor who teaches film, I understand what I was noticing was what we call cognitive estrangement, which is when you take a real world issue and you set it in a world that is other somehow. This is a theory of a guy by the name of Darko Suvin which i still think is one of the coolest <laughs> names i've ever heard i know if he didn't
0: make that up that's unfair
1: seriously i have i have like an 11th or 12th great ancestor called Balthazar de Wolf i think that's the only other name <laughs> i want Darko Suvin and Balthazar de Wolf to live in a like drafty castle
0: somewhere <laughs> the, a castle is definitely the right. That's like a mash game, but they were always <laughs> going to live in the castle.
1: Right, exactly. Every every one of those squares had castle. So, so the thing that makes the film cognitively estranged, the thing that shows us that it is otherwise, is called the novum. Often in sci-fi, the novum is that we're in the future. And so we can talk about what's going on in Earth now by like showing potential long-term effects of what's going on in Earth now, but it doesn't feel as dogmatic as if we made a documentary about that same issue in the present moment. It allows you to engage in the story in a way that doesn't necessarily ask you to sort of activate your political filter because it's not you that's being directly criticized. It's this other set of people that suddenly have a monster dropped in their midst. And that clearly isn't your New York City. But watching the film, I thought, oh shit, this is the closest to the feeling of what that day was like. You know, I, I think I had said at one point to somebody, aliens may as well have descended a mile away in lower Manhattan, this, it, it, it felt as surreal and unbelievable as that. And there's a, you know, reading the reviews afterward, there was one guy in the New York post, somebody makes a, a Garfield joke while walking through the tunnels. It's this like totally dumb in the movie, in the movie. Yeah. 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 So in the movie, they're like walking through subway tunnels and there's one guy that's, that's cracking dumb jokes. And I remember reading this New York post review and the guy was like, nobody would do that in the middle of a tragedy. And I was like, were you here? Like a
0: hundred percent they would.
1: Yeah. My sweet maids, you know, they were like we're making margaritas and putting on Magnolia and, and closing all the blinds. And that was happening, you know, just a couple of hours after other people in our dorm were like punching out windows. Cause they were afraid that people that they loved were you know, in the towers that day, it, it there's no sort of people are going to react in wildly different ways to, to tragedy. And, and that isn't a criticism of my sweet mates, by the way, like it just was, they were like, we can't take in anymore.
0: Yeah. I'm going to sort of paraphrase the description, but it's like trauma is anything that your brain and your body can't process all at once. There are millions of ways that are, we sort of check out, or respond in the midst of trauma and tragedy in order right. to, like, get to the other side or even, like, one step further.
1: And this particular film, it actually, in, in contrast to the really, I maintain, terrible posters they released at first, there were images that echoed 9-11. There's, there's images of sheaves of paper falling while they're fleeing from the monster. There's the... One of the characters that they go to save lives in Columbus Circle. And the, the I believe they're called the Turner Towers. They're the big two towers in Columbus Circle that look kind of like the Twin Towers. That's the sort of set piece. And they're sort of collapsing into each other. They're leaning on each other for most of the movie. And so there are these visual resonances for sure. But watching this kind of silly monster movie once removed was very cathartic for me. I am never going to be able to watch anything like flight 93 or anything, anytime, even images of that day come on. I'm like, n- I'm going to nope out of this. I've got, you know, like, you know, the whole, like, never forget thing does not apply to me. Like I, I wish, you know, Right. but here's a really brilliant thing that I think stuck with me about Cloverfield. And unfortunately I'm going to spoil the ending a little bit.
0: Yeah. I feel like if anybody hasn't seen it by now, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like game of Thrones. Like you got to watch it or we're going to spoil it. I'm sorry. Exactly, exactly. It's your responsibility at this point. So the two
1: main characters survive the monster. But the military kills them when they're trying to kill the monster. Wow. Right. So they, they're hiding under a bridge in Central Park in the military and attempting to bomb the monster. They they, they it's, it's just a blanket attack and they, they take out our main characters right. instead. And so I, I really... I thought that the film said some really interesting things about not only the terrorist attack, but the reaction to the terrorist attack. And that really, that was a turning point for me where I was like, oh, I felt like this movie gave me an opportunity to unpack things for myself and to talk about the politics of the... War and the terrorist attack in a totally different way, and it was a criticism, right like the movie was a criticism that wasn't going to turn off people who you know had strong feelings about the Iraq war but was making a broader statement about you know how how retaliation also is violent.
0: so how do witches connect to all of that
1: though? right. This is a side project and and I'm not actively working on it right now, but I'm just fascinated by it is there was really the emergence of a whole bunch of films, I think starting with Blair Witch, but really then like picking up with Eggers, the Witch and and some even TV shows and stuff, um, like like the reboot of Sabrina, where witches became evil again. I mean, certainly we had Hocus Pocus and stuff in the 90s, but we had lots of things like practical magic, right? Where there was a kind of tying of imaginary witches to Mm -hmm. a cultural sensitivity toward like pagan religious movements. Right
0: or even i would say like like some sort of tie into ecology also like there's like more earth based you know i always think of them sort of like the herbalists of our witch stories right they're like kitchen witches and yes. that sort of thing like they're domesticated almost but they've got this like magic like the way that they do their magic is sort of in a an earth based like here i am creating the potions and the herbal you know the herbal tonics and that sort of thing am i am i yes, that is exactly near exactly okay.
1: right so it's like um oh, we thought that, you know, like this figure of the witch was really scary, but actually it's women who are very in tune with the earth, right? And they just like are maybe a little
0: offbeat, but it's cool. Right. They're like your cool aunt, you know, your cool weird aunt, but they're not like the scary, gonna kill you kind of witch. Right. And we've started
1: to get more and more and more, I would argue sort of as conversations about, the climate's ability to kill us, um, have ramped mm. up, right. Um, or ramped back up because certainly in the past when witch hunts were going on, there have been actual studies that show that there were a lot of like ecological concerns in those moments to famines and that oh sort God, of thing. That's
0: so cool. I've never thought about the tie of mm-hmm. ecology and the story of how we talk about witches. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because so interesting. Often when women were confused,
1: were confused. <laughs> There's a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> I'm confused for witches. No, Accused of being witches. It was like my cow died, or like all my crops dried up and withered away, and it's her fault. Right. So there's been this sort of connection between um animism and magic and women and witchcraft and all these different things. And, and for a while there, it got a little friendly. And now it is like um we're getting more and more stories where almost the figure of the witch in the woods themselves are interchangeable, things like the Blair Witch. Like, you don't actually see the Blair Witch in the, in the first Blair Witch. Let's not talk about the sequels. That's a whole other...
0: <laughs> I, I could talk about that. Aren't they always? Quite
1: They're some time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's really the woods that are the sand in for the witch there, right? It's it's the, the environment itself that's scary. And a similar thing happens in the movie The Witch, the Eggers movie starring Anna Tyler Joy. Actually, the last shot of that is her sort of floating in the air and like her naked body like merging with the figure of a tree, right? And so I'm really interested right now in how anxieties about women and nature having too much power and being sort of quote-unquote threatening manifest in these stories about evil satanic witches. Like as long as you're like doing kitchen witchery and like in the house and, you know.
0: Honestly, like I keep hearing you talk and all uh, all I'm thinking is, oh my God, the number of grad school papers that could be written about, about witches and women and environment. I'm i sure. working on this one right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Among other things. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. But you talk about, let's just like t- try to make a segue there, which is you talk about witches to people who study math. <laughs> <which> <laughs> is just oh. So fascinating. So talk to me about your experience of being someone who works sort of across disciplines and maybe even you know I think you know in my background as someone who's been more artistic and felt like my whole life I wasn't sort of allowed into science realms because I was never you know I I was never really that good at math and science and like it wasn't until I was like 35 that someone was like you didn't like math because you didn't have a good teacher and I was like wait it wasn't me you know right um so I think so often Artists are told that they can't be scientists and scientists are told that they can't be artists. Right. And so I just want to hear a little bit of your experience in that, both like in your own life and also just like literally teaching a program to students, you know, like a humanities program to science and math students. Sure. So they're sort of by way of, of giving a visual to
1: to how I feel about reconciling things that on the surface appear radically different there's this great image by the artist Mari Andrews, who I'm, I, I'm hoping we can put this image in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but it's very like simple and very effective. And it is on the left-hand side, it says what things look like now. And it is just a squiggly line. It's just a black line that sort of goes everywhere and is very squiggly. And then on the right, it says what things look like in hindsight. And it's a straight road. Right. So like now looking back, I'm like, oh, here's how I took all of these pieces from these seemingly disparate things and have, you know, like slotted them into the career I have now. They all inform my passions and my interests and, and all these different things. But definitely the most resistance that I got, and I do not fault my mentors for this at all, was in grad school, right? American studies, the field that I got my PhD in traditionally comes from a wedding of English and history. Those are the sort of two disciplines that basically like collided together to form American Studies initially. It's a much richer field than that, but there aren't, like now it's a much richer field than that, but there aren't a lot of American Studies programs around the country, and there certainly aren't a lot of American Studies jobs for professors, right? most American studies hires are in English or history. And so in grad school, out of an abundance of concern for myself and my career, I often was pushed to kind of like think about myself as either sort of a person who does English or a person who does history. And I really resisted that, right? Because I I feel like I'm kind of both of those things and neither of those things. Right. Yeah. And, and I really wanted to sort of be able to continue to be tentacular and pursue all of my passions. Like when it came to my comp fields, when you're finishing a PhD or it's really more like midway through, you take comprehensive exams. And usually what you do is you pick three fields and you read 50 to hundred books in each field hour, uh, I which I should say 50 to 100 books and articles. I just want to do that field. forever.
0: Can that just be a paid position? Because that's what I want to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it sound, it, it, it's funny how different people react to it in the moment, right? Because you, yeah, you sure. only have a few months to do it. So it's, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting time in that sort of journey. But I just had a really hard time picking, like narrowing it down to three fields, right? Like, yeah, yeah. there are so many things that I want to that I want to talk about and bring together and that kind of thing. And what happened eventually was this job ad came up and for, for a postdoc at the Colorado school of Mines that basically was like, we want somebody who does environmentalism plus film performance, art, all these other things, but not literature. We have people who do literature already and not history. We have people who do <laughs> history already. Right. And I was like, Somebody wrote this job ad for me. This is so crazy. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to, like, pretend that a lot of that isn't dumb luck, right? But definitely had I really tried to slot myself into either of those two buckets, I wouldn't be, I don't think I would be as happy right now as I am. And, and I continue to be able to, expand my intellectual interests uh, because I get to talk to students who are the people who are working on making better batteries for solar power or, you know, are going to work for an oil company, but like are doing biofuel specifically. I love being in a place that that doesn't, that isn't an obvious fit because I won't get bored. I'll also say a lot of people are like, you make, cause I, I teach an art and environmentalism class too. And I have students make things and people are like, you're having engineers doing art projects. And that same sort of trying to slot people into like one position or put people in sort of narrow boxes. Like I see with my With the way people sort of envision the students, and I know you don't, because obviously you're doing this podcast, and like, (laughs) you understand that people are multifaceted, right? But, I mean, some of the coolest pieces of art I've ever seen have come from my math, computer science, engineering, geologist students, right? Like, they are... And they're bringing something completely different to the mix, but they're like whole people that have different interests and talents. And that's um, the magic
0: though, right? Yeah. But like that's the thing that gets me so excited is that I think part, part of what I just genuinely love about this plus that, like that sort of practice of mashing seemingly disconnected things together, is it like when we do sort of follow or, like, everybody who's sort of the same stays in one camp and the other people who are, uh, you know, a different kind of the same stay in a different camp is that we tend to always do things the same way. And I think that's why, like, I want to talk about this, like, as a – it's like a method of creativity, right? That, like, when you put someone who has never encountered the sort of standard – Like the way that you always talk about something. So like, you know, we have a particular language in a certain field and we have certain rules that we have to follow about how we do that and write about it and talk about it and do our work around it and all those things. And when you put people who are actually outside of that field and mash them into it, they don't come with all of those preconceived things right right the scripts to bring it back to the beginning of what you were talking about like the scripts that we follow like there right. are certain scripts that we follow as as an artist as a scientist right as filmmakers or as a structural engineer like there are certain scripts you follow in that and so when you just uh, like mash someone from something else into that without all of those scripts all of a sudden they see it in such a different way Mm -hmm. because they're not bound by all of those things. Right. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's absolutely one of my favorite things about this is that creativity is just so abundant. And like, I'm, uh, hopefully one of my other soon to be topics soon is going to be talking to some of your colleagues at school of mine so Tony Lefton and Lincoln Carr and I just remember sitting so Lincoln taught this class that I audited a few years ago which I will probably bring up it's like a rival and this class are the two things that like <laughs> you could, you could build a drinking game off of because I'm gonna end up bringing them up all the time in this <laughs> podcast but this so Lincoln Carr is a quantum physicist and he's also a poet and he taught this class and you know Tony Le lefton would guest lecture and she would walk students through like built poems and what those had to do with like she literally made people build poems so like engineers who are literally creating like what would a poem look like if it was built out of pipe cleaners you know and what was amazing is that like literally like one or two classes in I would sit down next to these students who were I think freshmen are in those in uh, Lincoln's class and you know, I'm like a 35-year-old person sitting in on a like 6 to 10 p.m. in the middle of a week lecture with these freshman students who probably think I'm just crazy. But he had them, he taught them narrative writing styles and every class he would sort of like have homework, I think, where they would have to write in a different narrative style. So like, write this like you were writing a text message thread or a Twitter thread or prose or poetry, right? And so it was teaching them those different scripts of how we know that people talk. And at the beginning of each class, he would have them read like three kids, three students. I'll say kids is a little demeaning, uh, three students who would open the class by reading their homework. And, you know, by the time we were done 10 minutes into class, I was literally like, I wanted to literally run around the room going like, do you have any idea what a brilliant writer you are Yeah. as a math person? I'm crying. Like I'm starting to tear up. It was just like, it, it did what it, you know, it gave me goosebumps just like it is now. It was fucking incredible. I'm going to really curse to, to watch these students who really probably a lot of their lives also were told that they, they couldn't be writers or artists of some kind who wrote some of the most beautiful narrative and poetry I've probably ever heard. And and it was like their first or second try, you know? Yeah. I consistently cry when students are presenting their final
1: projects because they're so good both in film and, and, and art. Like, I mean, it's really, when you let people be them whole, their whole selves, like magic happens. I mean, that's so that's corny, but it really, right. It really is true.
0: Yeah. And I, and that's the thing, right. Is that I think, uh, it's like what I'm facing now. And that I, I want to talk to about to people. Is it like, All of us are sort of inherently having to find ways to monetize what we do in the world in order to survive. And you know, I could go off on a rant about (laughs) about all those things and why we have to do that. But I think by nature that being a specialist is sort of what we're told is the most monetizable. So if you can sort of fit into one thing and specialize in that, then like your skills are super sellable. But you know i watch all of my friends who try to cut off pieces of who they are in order to fit into one particular thing who are like but i'm a poet over here and i'm a yoga teacher over here and i'm a scientist over here and how is it that i find ways i mean i want people to find ways to monetize that magic like the middle of whatever it is it's at the middle of that for them like what drives them really i think is the heart of that. Like there's always some sort of underlying driver that goes like, it doesn't matter what you're working in. Like you might not niche down into something, but there's something that drives you about why you're picking all those things, you know, but like being able to explore all of them is a thing that keeps you infinitely like curious and creative and being able to like push outside of what you knew before and create new things that are compelling to people, which I think we deeply need.
1: I agree. And I'm really happy you're doing this.
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, that's why I'm, I'm so excited to talk about it. Because it's, it's clear to me, like, as someone who's exploring those things, like, as someone who's nearly 40, who has been an artist most of her life, but has sort of had to find, like, the science, like, to me, that was, like, the science of it was marketing, right? right. Like, the, the sort of rigor necessary in order to, like, sell a thing. Like, that's how I could make a living. But it, it was never who I was, Right? Like, and so someone who's like this far into my career, who's going like, when something makes you cry within 60 seconds of talking about it, like you should probably pay attention to that. And also, like, I don't know, just having the sort of bravery to go like, screw everything everyone has ever told me about not being able to do or be all of these things. Right. And that like the magic really is when you tap into that thing, that gets you so excited and you don't have to cut off all those pieces of yourself in order to be seen and accepted and to belong. Right. And, and, and to feel like your work, your, your value isn't just for what you can sell, but hopefully you can also find a way to make a living as a human on this planet in the way that we have to live right now in order to do that. But yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a total joy to, to talk with you.
0: Same. Okay. Two final things, quick ones. Who else do you know of right now? If you can think of something off the top of your head, someone else who's connecting the seemingly unconnectable that gets you so inspired that could be a movie like, so a director or that's for me always going to be Denis Villeneuve, who is the director of, I think I said that right of Arrival. Or like a possibility model. That's a term I found from the Call Your Girlfriend podcast, where they talk about folks who inspire you, even if it was in your past. So like someone who showed you that it was possible to make a career out of stuff, all all these like sort of disparate things that you were interested in. Can I actually, can I draw
1: on a historical figure? Oh, please. Okay. This person isn't perfect in a lot of different ways. Your faves are problematic is what you're saying. Yeah. Your faves are problematic. Um, but in preparation for a a trip, I'm trying to take students on to to Italy to look at art and environmentalism there. I read Peggy Guggenheim's Mm. autobiography. Um, and I would say she like took a family background in art history and added a dash of just, like, um, her love of quirky community, and she transformed mm-hmm. the art world, basically. She's yeah. the person who gave Jackson Pollock his first show. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, when you think Guggenheim, you think of the Museum of New York. Right. And that was her uncle that managed that. Right? Right. But she was going to these crazy parties like in because she was incredibly wealthy. All your faves are problematic. Um, (laughs) But she was going to all of these parties all around America and Europe with these artists who were grappling with the fact that like the Nazis were invading France. Right. Right. Like she started collecting art and then had to hide it in a barn because the Nazis invaded Paris, right? Yeah. Um, But she really was excited by these scholarly and artistic communities that were so out of the mainstream at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And rather than going in this very sort of institutional direction that, you know, her family traditionally had, she made it more intimate. So maybe actually what she combined Mm -hmm. kind of was like art and intimacy. So her, um, her sometimes literally, (laughs) um, (laughs) it's it's a fun, it's a fun read, but her museum, the Peggy Guggenheim museum in Venice is her house that Mm. she lived in. And so when you're wandering through the Peggy Guggenheim museum, you're like wandering through her bedroom, but Alexander Calder made her fucking bed frame. Right. What? And you know, like the art is, is not just in her house, but is among her house is, yeah. is her house. Right.
0: It's like the air you breathe in there.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that, that, and this just recognizing the genius of the community you're in Mm. and finding like, I mean, obviously she had monetary resources that allowed her to do this, but just like recognizing the genius of what's going on around you and how community and connection and intimacy are part of that. I think that that is really inspiring to me right now, Mm. especially as we are part of a, you know, a community here in Denver that is just full of, like genius creative people that we haven't been able to connect with for a long time. (laughs) Thanks pandemic. Right. So I think I just, I've been really thinking about that going forward.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Like how do we, how do we bring that back and, and, and celebrate it and bolster it?
0: Yeah. I love that. I also love that you mentioned Guggenheim because like when you were like, can I draw on a historical model? Like literally my first thought. So one of the things I hope to do with this podcast is in addition to having interviews of people who are living and doing this sort of cross genre work is to do like literal, like possibility model, like solo shows where I actually cover a historical figure who has done this and was just an inspiration to me or others. And the first person I thought of when you asked that question was Hilma Ofklund, who I think still has a show at the Guggenheim right now, but like in the last year, certainly had, uh, or maybe the year before, I can't remember how long it's been running or if it's a permanent show, forgive me, art people, I don't really know the background of that. But she's this amazing artist who had a very scientific-esque background, like a lot of family lineage in, I think, naval stuff and other sciences, if I'm remembering correctly. And also, by the way, had a coven, like literally like five or six women who, I forget what she called them, but they met together like over an extended period of time and talked about which shit. I need to look more into this. There's a documentary, you have to see it. And I'll mention it also, of course, in the show notes. And she felt like her paintings were communications from the divine, basically, and that she created sort of her paintings created sort of a visual language. And she felt actually like it was too soon for the world to have them like it wasn't the right time. And so she never actually showed anything I don't know I think that was also partially because she wasn't asked like she is actually like historically the forerunner of the abstract movement but never credited for it because men like Mondrian and such were creating stuff just like hers and getting much more attention but she just felt like the world wasn't ready for whatever reason for that message because it was from the divine and like it needed to come at a particular time call it crazy or not she I think I think why the, I'm going to get all of this wrong. So everybody forgive me. I'm so sorry. But I think from what I'm remembering of the documentary and I had sort of been introduced to her work before, but I think the documentary talks about how like the Guggenheim might actually be the first place where like it's a full display of her work. And so I think it's so interesting that the Guggenheim, the person you mentioned as your sort of possibility model is the one who would have given a space decades later to someone who's also a possibility model of mine, wild, wild, and also a witch. So <laughs> Just full, circle, people. full circle, full circle. Okay. Last thing, where can people find you on the internets?
1: So I am at Shannon Mankus on both Instagram and Twitter. That's really where I'm most active.
0: Right. If you want to, if you want to hear pop culture commentary, especially during the Oscars or something, please (laughs) definitely follow someone like Shannon. It's one of my favorite places to be is pop culture, Twitter with Shannon after the Oscars (laughs) or something. So we're all just talking about what Billy Porter wore or how awful the Oscars were in general. (sighs) So it's great. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, friend. Thank you, Brandy. This was wonderful. Isn't Shannon just the best? I loved that conversation so much, and I hope you did too. Um, I wanted to finish, though, with just a few notes and corrections after we talked, which is there's one point in the conversation where I talk about um, poverty and buses and structural engineering and transportation and that sort of thing. And I just wanted to say that, of course, that folks in poverty are not the only ones who ride buses. And, And I don't think I said that directly, but just in case that seemed like it was inferred, that would be silly. I don't actually believe that. I don't think that's true. So I just wanted to add that clarification. I also wanted to say that the students in Lincoln's class are not freshmen. They're upperclassmen. And their writing in that class is uh, definitely, it definitely was not their first or second shot. They're in fact such incredible writers that they were selected out of a bunch of other really great students who applied for that class. And you can actually hear more about it all in an upcoming episode. Lincoln and I have actually already recorded a conversation that I'm going to release soon since Shannon and I talked. And I know also that Shannon joked at one point about wealth and wealthy folks being problematic, but I, I, I can't really speak for her, but I'm going to guess that she doesn't mean it literally or across the board. So I just wanted to say that uh, perhaps maybe instead of uh, sort of p- going to town on that and picking that apart, we might just all agree to point our distaste toward the wasteful expenses of our richest people rocketing themselves into space. How do you feel about that? Are you okay with that? Okay, great. Um, The documentary I was referring to on Hilma Ofklent is called Beyond the Visible. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I got so much wrong in the recap of it that you should just honestly go watch it. It's incredible. Um, But I mostly just want you to feel impressed that I mostly... I mostly successfully said Guggenheim multiple times, which always reminds me of this bit of Jenny Slate's and this Netflix special that she has recently, which I'll also link to in the show notes, where she uh, she talks about being at the Guggenheim, being high, and the fact that it's so ridiculous and awful to say that name over and over again, Guggenheim, Guggenheim. <laughs> uh and I couldn't remember it during during our conversation, mine and Shannon's, but Offclent's coven was called The Five, and they regularly held seances to commune with mystical spirits. I mean, Offclent was just a badass, you guys. Um, and lastly, I don't know if I'm going to record any of the solo shows about historical figures, so we'll see. But if you might be into me doing that, where I just sort of speak to you after doing a bit of research on historical figures that often mashed together seemingly unrelated things, then maybe tweet at me and tell me that you think that would be cool. And I'll consider doing that. Um, but okay. So, all right. Again, uh, you can find Shannon online on Instagram and Twitter at Shannon Minkus links to the show notes and everything we talked about are on my site at this plus dot this plus slash episodes. Uh, I'm just stumbling all over the place right now. You guys, I'm, I'm so excited and, and so nervous. Like I said, again, uh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Okay. Um links to the show notes and everything that we talked about are on my site at thisplusthat.com/episodes. And I would like to acknowledge that I do these interviews from my home on the native land of Ute, Cheyenne and uh, Arapaho people, but you can otherwise find me online at thisplusthat.com and at thisplusthatpod across social media mostly just Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, Thanks to the team at UpFire Digital for the audio processing. You can find them online at upfiredigital.com. All of my music is by the folks at slip.stream. You can find them online at that same address. And if you're a plus kind of person and you love this kind of shit as much as I do, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter at my site also in thisplusthat.com in my newsletter, I write all of the things that I'm finding intersections uh, or insights at the intersections of different things in my life. So sort of processing my daily experience, finding connections between seemingly disparate things, and then writing those and sharing them with you. And I also, in my newsletter, will share podcast announcements so that you never uh, miss an episode when it drops. I'll also, of course, in those announcements, give you a bit of behind the scenes takes on what happened in the conversation, my commentary on the conversation beyond what you'll hear in the interviews and curated links or um, like places that even these interview guests are referring to uh, to me to read and listen to and prep for the show that are related to what we talk about that I think you might also find interesting and I think it's also the only place where I'm going to uh, allow you to give me guest recommendations. So if you sign up for my newsletter, you can reply to me and tell me, oh my gosh, Brandy, there's this person that I know that's connecting these wild things together that I think you should talk about on the show. So if you want to sign up for that, go to thisplusthat.com, sign up for the newsletter. It should be relatively obvious on across the site where you can do that. Uh, and then lastly, just, I would love it if you would rate this five stars if you're such a fan already and uh subscribe to the show tell other people about it i'm positive you know other people who like mashing weird things together and uh talking about art science soul and uh all kinds of other things that are interesting in the world and uh having existential deep conversations but also maybe having a laugh at ourselves so uh i would love it if you shared it with anyone you know who you think might dig this and that's it that's a wrap on my first show except for one special thing remember i told you that i was going to drop in a little extra uh easter egg at the end so if you hang around for a second past the little bit of uh audio transition i'm gonna leave you with that small portion of conversation that Shannon and i had and yeah again thank you for being here i love it i'm so excited to be doing this i hope you're in in it for the ride with me all right thanks everyone So our personal story, of course, is that, like, I just remember uh, one of the first times or like not that long into hanging out, we we're friends, of course, with this group of brilliant literary poets here <laughs> and in Denver, and you, we had all gone to this karaoke bar. <laughs> I had never, I never heard you sing ever. I didn't even know you could sing. I had no idea that you had a performance background. And so we walk in there. I am an like an awful singer. It's going to karaoke with this group of people is one of the more embarrassing things I submit myself to. I feel like (laughs) I just remember trying a Lady Gaga song at one point, thinking I'm going to nail this. And then I was like, I no, I ended up sitting alone on the couch and everyone backed away. Like at some point, I think it was like totally circumstantial, but everyone backed away from the couch. And I was like, man, I just really shouldn't do this. But I remember going to that karaoke bar with you, and I'm not looking for... But I think maybe we
1: were trying to give you a chance to shine, right? Like, you know, on the dance floor when everybody forms a circle
0: (laughs) around the... I don't think so. But what did happen when we did... I I feel like it was the first time we ever went to the karaoke bar, and we weren't just in Mike's house. We... You were the first one, I think, to sing, and you dropped this perfect rendition of a song from Chicago. And I was like, who is this person? <laughs> <Very obnoxious laughs> you and Tony, of me, your husband, were just amazing. It was awesome. So talk, talk to me about musical theater, how you went out there. Because I also feel like there's so many times we're like watching Oscar movies or something, and you drop some sort of wild story about knowing Billy Porter, or having like <laughs> run into so and so at some sort of like weird club back in the, in the East Coast or something. <laughs>
1: Uh, I, yeah, I, I was in, uh, I was, I was a background performer to Billy Porter at one point. I would not say I know him. I will not claim that sort of (laughs) honor, but I did sing behind him on stage at one point, which was awesome.